This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-aged children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. This episode, what I want to do is share with you the story of a case we worked on, which is a, uh, a homicide investigation out of the state of Kentucky. And I want to use the story because it's an interesting case for one, but I also want to use it as an example to share with you some thoughts on, on the importance of the crime scene and the importance of the evidence found within a crime scene. And not, I mean, that sounds like a, you know, a quick overview. Well, you know, the evidence isn't important, but what I want to talk about is the securing of a crime scene, the importance of the integrity of the crime scene, and what can actually come from that, from what you can yield from you know, from properly looking at a scene and, and, and making sure the evidence makes its way wherever it needs to go for analysis, for review, for test results and things like that, ultimately to get it in front of a jury. And I also want to talk about the jury and how important that can be for an investigator and for the truth. So the case that we want to talk about is the murder of Ryan Poston. Ryan Poston was murdered on October 12th, 2012. It was in an area in Campbell County, Kentucky, under the jurisdiction of the Commonwealth's attorney down there. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting case. He was shot and killed by gunfire by his, as they say, on-again, off-again girlfriend, a woman by the, young woman by the name of Shana Michelle Hubers. She has been tried and convicted twice, in fact, and we're going to go through that as well. And what I'd like to do is go through the case, and this is going to probably take several episodes to go through, because we're going to walk through it um, piece by piece and point out some important factors 
within the investigation itself, the initial response, the investigation, the preparation for their trial, um, their defense, and ultimately the jury's verdict. And what I hope you get from this is one, the interesting story. You find it interesting, you hear the story and you say, wow, this is, this is, this is kind of crazy. But the other thing I want you to look at is the role of the investigators, what they do to prepare for one of these cases. It's not as easy as television makes it seem sometimes. And I'm going to come back and talk about TV and certain aspects of the forensic component here and what TV leads you to believe in what reality really is. So he was in the, the, the shooting took place in a small condominium that was owned by Ryan Poston. It was his home. She was at the house and, um, you know, he, he was in an area by a dining room table. There was a dining room table. It was a small room, kind of a living room turns, you know, transitions to a dining room. It's not a, it's not a big place. It's a small place. And he's seated at the dining room table when he is shot. That's important that he's seated at the table because what I'm going to do is at some point during this, I'm going to also go through some of Miss Huber's statements and uh, her, her phone call to 911 and things like that. So it was in the evening on October 12th. Uh, how it's reported is Shana Huber's calls 911 to report that she shot and killed Poston in his, in his Highland Heights condominium. Highland Heights is an area in Campbell County, Kentucky. It is just across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. She ne- immediately says to the 911 operator that she, she shot him in self-defense. Now, having done a lot of these, I can tell you that's generally the number one reason given why somebody shoots another individual. I'm not talking about gangbang shootings on the street. I'm talking about Somebody shoots somebody in a home, there's an incident, there's a, there's a lengthy investigation. Usually, there is going to be some sort of claim of self-defense. Um, she was questioned that night. She was brought in and questioned that night. She said, um, you know, she claimed that Poston had been abusive to her. Um, she was read her Miranda rights that evening, but um, she voluntarily spoke. And I will say this. If you look up her name, Shana Hubers, and check out some of the YouTube videos, you'll see actual video footage of her in the interrogation room. You'll see what I mean when, when I, as I start to explain her behavior being rather odd during her, her time um, in questioning. She was read her rights. They didn't ask her any questions. She voluntarily spoke and spoke and spoke. She just kept going. She's explained the details of their relationship. <clears throat> um, she described Mr. Poston as a guy who was very vain. Um, you know, uh, he was abusive to her. And that night, she she basically, uh, you know, called 911 and said that uh, he was trying to hurt her. As a matter of fact, she said he beat me and tried to carry me out of the house. And I came back in to get my things. This is her quote. And he was right in front of me. And he reached down and he, gra- he grabbed the gun. And I grabbed it out of his hand and I pulled the trigger. These are the initial phases of an investigation. They start with that call to 911. Those are some of the most important statements we get from people. It's usually right after an incident occurred. They don't have the presence of mind to, to formulate a great story. 
they think they are, they're saying things that probably three days down the road, they're going to forget they said, but they're going to come back to haunt them later. So she's basically said, he beat me and tried to carry me out of the house. I went back in to get my things. He got in front of me. He picked the, he picked the gun up off the table. I took it from him and shot him. He pulled, she pulled the trigger. So the 911 operator asked her, well, how long ago did you shoot him? I don't know, 15, 10, 15 minutes ago, maybe. And um, that begs the question. I mean, just as an investigator, you just shot somebody. It's not in your house. You're claiming self-defense. What happens in those 15 minutes? Why would there be 15 minutes between the time that you shot him and calling 911? That's a question that has to be asked. That's a question people would want to know. Why, why 15 minutes? Because when you think about that, if you just, you know, the way she kind of nonchalant, she says, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, 10, maybe 10, 15 minutes ago, you kind of let that kind of wash over you like water going over a rock in a stream. It just goes. It's gone, right? Okay, 10, 15 minutes. We don't make, if the conversation goes or goes in a different direction, we almost forget that. You can't forget that. There's 15 minutes in her words between the time she pulled the trigger. And remember, she said, I pulled the trigger. What she's not telling you at that point is she shot him six times. She just said, I pulled the trigger. So they order her over the phone. The 911 operator says, I want you to go outside and uh, have your hands in front of you. When the police got there, they ordered her to the ground and, uh, you know, they, they took over the scene. But we come back to that 15 minutes. She called her mom. Before she called the police, she called her mother. And to her mother's credit, her mother told her, you have to call the police and tell them what happened. But think about this. Your first call is to mommy. Maybe you were coddled as a child. Maybe, you know, she's been overprotective and you're just scared. I get it. You know, whatever the case may be. Because there are a lot of cases out there where people actually have defended themselves with a firearm in self-defense. And it's completely legit and ends up being justified. Uh, but you call mom first is kind of odd. I'm, you know, you're in fear for your life, in fear apparently enough to pull the trigger on somebody, and you're going to call mommy first, and then 15 minutes, you're going to call the police. You would think, I think it would be logical to conclude you would dial 911 immediately. But people in stressful moments do things sometimes that are not what we might think would be, you know, the best decision. Um, when they got her, when they got there, there was a lieutenant there, uh, Dave Fornash of the Highland Heights Police Department. He said he entered the apartment. And he saw Ryan Poston's body on the floor in the dining room behind the dining room table. So let me give you just an idea of this layout. The dining room table is kind of in a nook. Uh, there's a little room on either end of it. The table is kind of up against, not up against the wall, but where Ryan Poston was located was behind the table. There was a chair on the far side of the table. The back of that chair was up against the wall. So he was in that area over there by the wall. And when Dave Fornash entered the room, he observed Ryan Poston's body on the floor next to that chair. Now, think about what she said. Right from Jump Street, I went back in to get my things and he was in front of me. Well, where did you go? 
Were you on the other side of the table between the table, the, the maybe one and a half, two feet between the table and the wall? Because you said he got in front of you and he picked up a gun. So right away, the position of the body and her initial statements do not match. There's, there's. Now, granted, while while the guys from the police department are showing up there, they're probably not processing all that information. They may not even be hearing everything or being given the information that the 911 operator had received on the initial call. But when you start to look and these things start to unfold, you say, well, she's saying this, and that's not where he was. So right away you're saying, hmm, why would she say that? So um, she claims it was in self-defense. So uh, <clears throat> Dave Fornash actually explains, and the videos will show you. I mean, his explanation is, you know, he says it was crazy. You, you almost wouldn't believe her behavior in the interview room. You know, one of the things that she does in, in that interview room is she starts to cry. She starts to get emotional and making noises as if she's crying and, and wailing. Um, and this is not like hearsay. This is not somebody explaining it. This is on the video. You can watch it for yourself. The second he leaves the room, she just shuts it off like a light switch. And I remember seeing that saying, wow. Wow, that was that was bizarre behavior. Like, I mean, it was it was this over dramatic crying and wailing, and then all of a sudden, when they walk out of the room, she just shut it off like like it was nothing. Like, and it was nothing. It was completely fake, as you as you can see when you watch it. Um, but uh, when you see that type of behavior, and then you start to see some of these other things that come into play about her original statement of where she was back in the house, he got in front of her, a fight for the gun. You, uh, you have to be very suspicious of everything else she's going to be saying. You also have to be very attentive now because you start to think she's deceptive. She's not telling the truth. Truth. So we have to really pay attention to everything she's saying. And, and it also has to go in your line of questioning. But she also asked for an attorney. So once she did that, they didn't ask her any questions. But she just kept talking. And it was in a room that had a video on, and she just kept going. There was no solicitation by, by the investigators to get her to say anything. As a matter of fact, they even told her, we can't ask you any questions. We just have to sit here with you, make sure you're okay. And she just kept going on and on and on. And it was a classic example of somebody who thought they were kind of in control and that they were, they were winning. They were manipulating the thoughts of these, these, these investigators who were there. Um, when in fact the investigators were doing really, uh, the right thing and just kind of just let her go, let her go. When people want to talk, let them go, you know, they, they let them say what they're going to say. Um, and Fornash even said, so I can't ask you any questions. And, um, she asked to see a lawyer. She could not remain silent. And, um, she started saying things like this. I was so out of it. I was like, it's in self-defense, but I killed him. And you come to the scene, and she's just talking, and Fornash just sits there listening. She said, I was raised really, really Christian, and murder is a sin. It just seemed like, Dave Fornash said, it seemed like she was just constantly babbling, and she was. Um, she, she looks at him and says, you have really pretty teeth. Did you have any orthodontia? These are the kinds of questions that you know, come from people who are, one, nervous, two, changing the subject. But the most important thing is 
If a normal person with normal intentions had done what she just did for the right legal and just reason, these are not conversations you're, you're expecting to have. It's kind of bizarre. Um, she talked so much that the officers actually wanted to leave the room. So what they ended up doing is they would rotate officers in. Nobody, to nobody spoke to her. Nobody asked her any questions. Um, she asked questions and said, hey, if I have to go to jail, can you shower there? Or do you just, you know, get really dirty? Um, and they said, what, she says, what are they going to do with me? Male, male police officer says, I don't know. They just told me to come in here and sit with you. And she just kept going. She blurts out. He's pulled guns on me as jokes before, leading up to a fight in which she says she feared for her life. Shannon Huber said, and I shot him in self-defense because he's done stuff before where I've hit my head on a headboard. Okay, listen to that statement. I shot him in self-defense because he's done stuff before. That's not I shot him in self-defense because I thought he was going to kill me right there. Her statement right there is very, very significant. I shot him in self-defense because he's done stuff before, and I've hit my head on a headboard that's in bed. So you were doing things in bed, and, um, and that's what you're going to go. And she says, I could have died. One of the things about her is her story never really stayed the same. And it's really beginning with that 911 call on how she ended up with a gun in her hand. Um, she was... She said uh, he was screaming at me, telling me, uh, telling me I was an effing hillbilly and that he effing hates me and all this other stuff, and, um, which, you know, flies in the face of the description of Ryan Poston by any one of the people that knew him well. He just apparently was not that kind of person. But we all know that things happen behind closed doors that a lot of people don't know, but it just didn't really marry up to everybody that knew him. Um, he was a licensed gun owner. He, he did have a license to carry a firearm. Um, he would sometimes place his handgun on the dining room table after he came home from work. Now, there are some of you out there that live in states or jurisdictions where, you know, carrying a gun is, is, you know, forbidden. Um, some of the more, um, uh, liberal states, they don't, they don't have concealed carry or open carry made easy for its citizens. And so some of you may be listening to this saying, wow, I, you know, why would he have a gun? Well, it's very common in a lot of states. People do carry firearms for defense. Uh, and he walks into his house and he might take it out of the, the holster or the gun out and place it on a table. There was no children there, so he may do that. Whether you like it or not, that just might be the case. Um, so she said he, he was screaming at her about a hater. And uh, then she says, and I just picked up the gun. And in the middle of him doing something with his arms or saying something crazy, I shot him. Okay. Way different from the first account. Way different. Not, not like the same story with a subtle difference. This is something completely different. Here, listen to that again. And I just picked up the gun. And in the middle of him doing something with his arms or saying something crazy, I shot him. So this time she tells him she picked the gun off the table when before it was Ryan went for the gun. Um, and basically, saying something or doing something, that's why she shot him. Um, earlier she told the 911 operator they, they had a physical altercation and, and, and kind of wrestled for, for that firearm. Now, this is completely different. So you got to keep that in mind as you're moving along as the investigator and um, you're seeing what's going on. Now, simultaneously... The scene has to be processed. 
We're going to get back to that in a second. I just wanted to give you a little groundwork, a little background on her statements and how she was scattered all over the place. Um, then she said, and he reached down and grabbed the gun, and I grabbed it out of his hand and pulled the trigger. So bang, she goes right back. Uh, he was laying... She didn't stop at one bullet, all right? She describes the final moments of Ryan's life um, and the details are as follows. She said, he was laying with his face on the table, like twitching. And so I knew he was going to die. She said, and I walked around the table. She starts to cry. And I think that's when I shot him in the head. I shot him probably six times. Interesting that she knew that. She knew the number. I shot him in the head. He fell onto the ground. He was like laying like this. And she gets down on the floor and actually acts out in the interview room where he was laying. His glasses were still on, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. They were not. He was twitching some more. I shot him a couple more times just to make sure he was dead because I didn't want to watch him die. Hmm. She didn't say... Um, uh, the chief down there, Birkenauer, she, he, you know, he, he makes a statement. He says, she didn't say she was worried about him suffering. She said that she couldn't stand to see that, and that's why she finished him off. Very important. And he's right. He's right on the money. Not that she would have said, I wanted to put him out of his misery. would have been any better, but she, she didn't want to watch it. It wasn't about him in pain or him dying. It was, I didn't want to watch it. So, I, so she ended it. Um, you know, and, you know, he laid there, she said, uh, he laid there helpless and, and basically she walked over and shot him multiple, multiple times. And one of the interesting things that we're going to explain as we move forward on this case is where he was when he was shot. A lot of times people think of a shooting, they say, oh, this person shot this person. There's so much more detail that goes into a shooting. One is how many times they get shot. Well, let's start with the reason. There's a reason why somebody's shot. And then there's where were they shot, meaning where on the body were they hit? What was the body position? Were they in one location? Were they in multiple locations? All of those little things are going to add up to the totality of the circumstances and tell the story of what really happened. Now, you may never, uh, you never really um, get every minute detail, but you can get a lot of it. If you're listening and you're paying attention to the scene and what the scene is telling you. Um, one of the things she said was, and this, this is, uh, I couldn't believe I watched this video of her saying this. She said, I knew he was going to die or have a completely deformed face. He's very vain and he wants to get a nose job. Just that kind of person. And I shot him right here and I gave him the nose job he wanted. Now, most of you that are listening to this may hear this and say, what kind of person says that? And that's a good question. But when you're the investigator and you ask that same question to yourself, the answer that you're going to give yourself, at least initially, is somebody that's not telling the truth. We'll figure out the medical issues and any other violent issues or anger management issues or whatever it might be later. But at that point during your investigation, you're saying she's lying. And she's saying things that are so off the wall. Um, when she actually said that, uh, I think everybody, everybody was stunned. 
So um, she started dancing around the room. When the police left the room, she started dancing around, doing pirouettes, started singing Amazing Grace. Uh, you know, she, she, she did um, some crazy things. So Dave Fornash, the lieutenant, he actually walks in at this point. He says, okay, here's what's going to happen right now, Shana, okay? With everything that we have, we're going to, uh, I'm going to have to charge you with murder. And Shana Hubers responded. What degree? That may not sound like a lot to some of you. That, that's a bizarre question. You're just being told by a police officer you're being charged with murder. And your immediate response is, well, what degree? It's almost like she knew she was getting charged with murder. She just wanted to know, like, all right, how bad is this going to be? So, um, you know, he asks, he says, here it's murder. There is no degree. You're being charged with murder. Now, he had been shot six times, and, and he'd been shot in multiple places on his body, which we're going to get into. Um, but one of the things the chief said at the time, and they were right, is that when somebody's hit that many times in that many directions and in, in different locations within the room, it doesn't really fit with someone who fears for her life at the moment or that she's being attacked. So you, you have to look at self-defense. In self-defense, one of the questions we ask all the time is, okay, show me the part where this person was on the defensive. Where, where was that? Where does that happen? So if we're going to go with a, with a, uh, a defense of self-defense in the courtroom, we have to kind of, at some point, disclose or show where that defense was. Where were you defending yourself where the use of deadly force then becomes justified? And that does happen sometimes. But we have to, we have to kind of see a clear picture of where that happened. There was none of that here. Um, little on their background. So Ryan, uh, Ryan Poston was older than Shana Hubers by about, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 years older than her. He was, a, he was an up-and-coming attorney in the area. Lived over, um, was originally from uh, Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Um, and uh, he was working in the area and he's doing very well. Uh, you know, starting to see some success. This is a young man who had uh, a very good family. I had the good fortune of meeting his family and seeing them. Um, at the trial. And they were really nice people. I, I got to be honest with you. I wouldn't just say this. I was actually, I was impressed by them, all of them. They were, they were really, they were really genuinely nice people. I met his mom, his stepdad. I met his dad. I had a lengthy conversation with his father. Um, and I met his sisters. He had, um, yeah, I believe three, three sisters, uh, all really nice people. His, his upbringing was, was impressive. You know, he was, went to a, a Blessed Sacrament School in Fort Mitchell. He uh, attended, uh, as a record show, International School in Manila in the Philippines and International School in Geneva in Switzerland during high school. Um, he went to Indiana University. Um, he was obviously a good student. He majored in history, geography, and political science, and then went on to law school um, at Northern Kentucky University in Highland Heights. And after getting his Juris Doctor degree, he began working as an attorney in Cincinnati. So this guy had a, you know, he had a lot of promise. He, he, this was a young man on the, on the way up. He was doing well. Shana Hubers also had um, a, you know, promising future. When he met her, she was 19 years old. Um, 
she was a psychology student at the University of Kentucky. And um, she graduated uh, cum laude and was pursuing a master's degree in school counseling. You're going to find that ironic when we, when we lay out everything that she did here and the, things that, the other things that she said and how this all went. She's a major in psychology and wanted to be a school counselor. You might at the end of this go, yeah, that's not the person I want around my kids. But they had a volatile relationship. There was a lot of breaking up. And um, from what we hear, most of it was Ryan trying to break up with her. The texts between them on the phone was like literally, I think somebody told me, for every, he would respond to like every 50 to 100 texts she would send. He would send one. And um, whether or not she knew this, that night he was scheduled to have a date with another woman up in Ohio. I don't know whether that played into this or whether she even knew it, to be quite honest with you. But uh, he had broken up with her several times, and this was kind of one of those. She may have been obsessed with him or the relationship and not wanting to let it go, to, to, to put it mildly. And um, so, you know, that was kind of the background. So they were both actually, you know, on paper, <laughs> let's say on paper, promising futures for both. Um, his certainly was more documented. He was actually doing it. She was on the way into a, hopefully a profession at some point and then derailed hard this evening, uh, of October 12th. Um, she said some other crazy things after she talked about the nose job. Um, she said, I don't know if anyone will ever want to marry me now that they've know I've killed a boyfriend in self-defense. Um, you know, she started singing in the, in the room. And the words in the song, in the little tune she made up was, I did it. Yes, I did it. I can't believe that I did that. And I'm so good at acting. I don't really know. You know, she's a bright girl, obviously, from her academics. But as we all know, if you've gone to the university of reality in this world, that there's a lot of people that are really good students, really top shelf academic world but they're socially dysfunctional. How many of you out there work with somebody who, wow, he's got a master's degree in this from some great college. Yeah, but he, he strikes me as a guy that can't tie his shoe. And so my point is there's a lot of different people. You know, They look great on paper, but when you get in front of them, you're like, wow. And she might have been one of those people. She might have been one of those people. Um, if you looked at them, if you look at a photo of them, they look like the all-American couple. She's a very pretty young lady, and he's a very handsome guy. You know, they both look like they could be models. Um, and together they walked in. I, I'm sure if they walked into a room at a party, you know, the heads would turn. Here's the young, successful attorney and his attractive girlfriend who just graduated with honors from, you know, University of Kentucky and blah, blah, blah. But there's always that kind of behind-closed-doors thing that goes on that uh, is a little crazy. So that's the incident. She's claiming that she shot him. She doesn't give much in the, uh, except her conflicting statements as far as a breakdown of everything. But that's not un unusual. People that have done something like this. Listen, Shane Humers is not stupid. She knew what she did was wrong. And she was, she was trying to lay out her, I'm crazy or uh, you know, self-defense. She was just bouncing back and forth. Best thing she could have done that night was not said anything. And spoke to an attorney and formulated a plan. But she kind of blew herself out of the water right from Jump Street. 
So the investigation now unfolds. Now the processing of this scene. What I want to do in this episode is just take you into the scene a little bit of what they found. In other words, of what um, what the police department found when they went in. Okay. And uh, how important it is to look at this and say, where do we begin? How do we begin? What's important? What's part of this and what's not? Um, so as they walked in, as you heard me say earlier, Dave Fornash of the police department, he sees Ryan Poston's body on the floor. His body's kind of up against the wall. He's laying somewhat on his uh, stomach to his right side, slightly, slightly canted. There's a substantial amount of blood, and uh, he's deceased. There's a dining room table that he's behind. One of the things that happens in, in crime scenes, one of the mistakes that happens, and it's not a mistake that changes outcomes of blood trials, but it can, is too many people get in there. There's too many cooks in the kitchen. When you go back to the days of the O.J. Simpson case, and there, there, I, I bring that up because that's a turning point in crime scene. Okay, that was one of the first times on national television that a team of really successful and accomplished and smart lawyers pointed out some things in the world of, of, of processing a crime scene that changed the way things were done in the future. They kind of got their pants pulled down and they got their asses slapped. There was mistakes and there was mistakes that should have happened, but it was a thing that was being done at the time and things change, right? One of the things that changed, a lot of police departments, chiefs, sheriffs and whatnot across the country said, you know, they might have, they probably wouldn't have said it out loud in public at a press conference, but they said to themselves, you know, we do, we do a lot of those things the same way. And well, this has to be done. And, and what you saw after that O.J. Simpson case was the changing of the world of forensic investigations at crime scenes. You saw dedicated crime scene units being ramped up and stood up. You saw much more training opportunities for crime scene investigators to do things a little bit differently. You had more science involved. Um, and and the edu just the overall education of crime scene. The other thing you're seeing and it's crazy, right? OJ was in the 90s. This still hasn't completely changed. And, and most people's impression of this comes from television shows. You see homicide investigators walking through and telling crime scene investigators, I want this, I want this, I want this. Those are slowly becoming the days of old. Okay, you get, You're seeing a lot more very accomplished crime scene units, very skilled, very educated, very knowledgeable. Sometimes they're a mix of civilian crime scene techs and sworn crime scene investigators, detectives. You don't have a lot of these other people in there dictating what should be caught, what should be picked up. You know, they're not just taking pictures. They're doing a lot of things. They are making determinations on items of evidence, evidentiary value and probative value and what we can do with this and what, what this means and what that means. So... Um, those days of the homicide, the salty old homicide guy walking in and barking orders at everybody, 
well, it should be over, but it's not completely, but it's, it's certainly moving in that direction, much to the chagrin of a lot of homicide investigators. They, want, they still want that, you know, that, that say. But the problem is some of these crime scene investigators are far more schooled up than they are in the area of just the crime scene portion. So there's a lot more communication now is really probably the best way to say it between those two than there used to be. And in this particular case in Highland Heights, they brought in the Campbell County Crime Scene Unit. And, you know, they started to process this scene. One of the very first things that has to happen in a crime scene is documentation. The ideal set of circumstances is the patrol walks in, sees what it is, makes a determination, and steps out. There's probably going to be an application for a search warrant. Now, you can go back in. You just can't do anything until the search warrant arrives. And a crime scene investigator may show up and say, well, I got to take a look because I got to see what I need. And they look, and then they back out. And nothing officially is done until the search warrant arrives. What ends up happening then is one of the most important aspects of the processing of a crime scene. It's the documentation photographically. Now, technology is an amazing thing, and it's constantly advancing in our world. And you'll see new pieces of equipment at crime scenes. And it, for the layperson, it looks like a surveyor is standing out there. And it looks like the, the tools that you'd see a surveyor with on the side of the road working. And what it is, it's a, it's a scanner. It's a laser scanner. Um, there's companies like Leica, big company, Faro, and Trimble. Those are the three main ones we usually deal with. They're all excellent. They all do the same thing. There might be some some minor intricacies that are different between the three different products, but the gist of it is it is a laser scanner that sits on a tripod within a crime scene, and it will scan in a 360-degree rotation. It also has a camera element capturability within it, and the idea is you may scan a room or a house or an area on the street. You may take five scans, 10 scans, 20 scans. You're, you're literally moving that scanner from different locations around that scene to get different angles, different points of view. And then what ends up happening is they get registered together. They get merged. Okay? And once all those scans are put together in what's called a point cloud, you can work within that point cloud. It's a 360-degree environment on your, on your computer screen that you can navigate through, very similar to a walkthrough that a real estate person might show you of a home, except what you're looking at here in this particular home is death and destruction and physical evidence and carnage. So, But the technology is fantastic. I bring that up because I think it's very important that the public knows and, and people know that technology is evolving and crime scene is evolving with it, crime scene investigation. The other piece of equipment is the one that has been around forever, and it is your camera. Now, the technology there advances as well. You know, you're not using Polaroids anymore. You're not even using 35-millimeter wet film. Everything now is a DSLR, digital single-lens reflex camera. The laser, and this is so important. We try to tell this in a lot of the schools we go to and teach. The laser is not a replacement for your camera, okay? You got to remember, your laser is in a fixed position when it scans. Now, you can move it as many times as you like once you're done with a scan. You can get as much of it as you want. 
and they're fantastic, but they are not the extension of your eyesight. In a way, they are, but the camera is going to enable you to move around freely and take photos of things that you see. So it stands to reason that before the photo is taken, you, the operator of the camera, need to know what it is you're taking the photo of and why. Why am I taking a photo of that particular item? Well, maybe it has value. We call it probative value. So you're going to document it. You're going to document where it is by an establishing shot further away, mid-range, and you're going to move into close-up, and, and you may do examination quality photography on whatever it is, or maybe blood spatter on it. There could be a fingerprint on it or something like that. Keeping in mind the whole time that those photos are not just for you to review or for you to refresh your memory. These are the things that are going to be presented to a jury. Let me jump ahead just a little bit. The jury. They're actually the ones that matter. In the end, on the final day, the final act, from the 911 call to the gavel being slapped down on the bench by the judge and a verdict being read, the jury is the most important group of people in any criminal investigation. I like to say it may be the second most important civic duty a person in our country can perform. I believe the first most important civic duty is serving in our armed forces, the United States military. We're a volunteer army, and I don't think anybody outdoes them as far as a civic duty. So bravo to them. The second one is maybe sitting in a jury, uh, on a, uh, especially on a major trial. You are going to sit in judgment, sit and listen to the facts, and the openings and the closings and the direct and the cross-examination and everything else. And ultimately, you are going to make a decision, depending on where you live and what the rules are in your particular state, on the freedom of the individual sitting at the defense table. Are they going to spend the rest of their life in jail? Five years, three years, ten years? Or, in some states, their life. You may sentence them to death in a capital murder case. So don't underestimate the importance of the jury. And one of the things we try to stress to investigators is that very thing. Your, your, your performance here today, how well you do investigating the scene, is going to directly affect how well the jury is going to be able to perform. What we want to do is give them the best set of circumstances and facts and give them the opportunity to make the best decision based on everything and how it's presented. So when you go under that yellow tape and you're in there, you, you should keep that in mind. That's what you're working towards. That's your job. Your job is to give them the information to make the decision. And you have two roles. You have one, as the professional investigator. As a professional investigator, your job is to collect the information. Go there, observe it, identify it, collect it properly, preserve it, have it tested if it needs testing, and get those results. Okay, that's the investigator side. The other part is a professional witness. When you do go to court, it's your job to make sure that the jury understands what it is you did, why you did it, and what it means. So you have a professional investigator and a professional witness. You're those, you are both of those people when you go under that yellow tape. You have to be able to explain it. I always say, 
you could have a great piece of evidence. Could be really impactful. But if you don't get the point across to the jury and it's missed, it's nothing more than whipped cream on shit in the end. So you have to get that point across to these people. And the way you do it is pay attention. That brings me back to what we were saying earlier. The amount of traffic in a crime scene has to be kept to a minimum. Captains, chiefs, majors, sheriffs, there's no reason for any of you to be in there. I'm telling you right now, there's none. 90% of the time, if they do go in, it's about their ego. It's because I can. It's because I'm the man. No reason for you to be in there. If you're not generating a report and you're not going to be a witness, and by the way, if you go inside that tape, you are a witness, there's no reason for you to be in there. Here's another thing. There's also no reason for a prosecuting attorney to be in there. And I know that's going to ruffle some feathers around the country in certain areas like where I live. But I'm sorry, they're not. You're now a witness. When you walk through that tape, you're going on a crime scene entry and exit log. You are a witness. You should generate paperwork as to what you did while you were in there. I don't care if you say, I just went in to take a look. Okay, I'll write a report. You're a witness. And that pisses a lot of people off when we say that. But really, what, what business do you have of going in at that time? I'm not saying you can't go in later when th certain things have been done. When everybody starts walking in, the, the chances of something getting moved or, or um, contaminated, the chances just go up. So the, the amount of traffic that goes in is something we really have to work on in this country. We really do. We have to take it more serious. I'm, I'm, listen, back in the days, I was guilty of it too. Uh, we, we allowed too many people to walk through. You know, and they, they, have, they have rank, so they just tell you to go you know, pound salt and I'm coming in. Um, one of the things I used to do is I used to find the most angry police officer that was there. The guy that was crotchety, you know, the guy with like 23 years on the job that's still on patrol, not because he wants to be, but because he keeps getting shit on for promotions. I would find that guy and I'd make him in charge of the entry log because he's just been looking for a chance to tell the boss no, and they will challenge them. The, the, you know, as we say, the boot, the guy with, you know, like three months on a job, he's not going to challenge anybody. He's still shitting razor blades. He doesn't, he's not. He's scared of everybody. So that's not the guy you want to pick. But going into that scene is very important. How many people you allow in there is very important. I'm going to tell you right now, criminal defense attorneys look at that. They want to see the entry exit log. They're going to ask you questions. Why was he in there? Why was she in there? What was, who's this person? What role did they play? It's not a spectator sport is what we say. It's really not. Um, you, can, you can send out images out to a command post. You can watch them in there. You can do this. Some, some people can even have a live feed of watching what's going on. But going in should be limited, very limited. And in this particular case, um, there was a lot of evidence. There was a lot going on within this crime scene that was going to be very important because a lot of this has to marry up. It either has to uh, substantiate somebody's statements you know, corroborate somebody's statements or refute them. And they're going to do one or the other. They're generally never neutral. It's usually going to lend to a story that somebody's given or it's going to say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And remember what I said, Shana Huber's in the beginning. She was already contradicting herself. But when they have that, man, a light, light bulb should go off in your head. You need to stop and you need to look at it and you need to say, look, she's saying a couple different things here. 
let's really go through this slowly. One of the other very important things is the rate at which you work in the crime scene. We tell the people this a lot most of the time. When you rush and you get going too fast and you have outside influences, people asking you questions, so what about this? Hey, I need this, I need this. You tend to make mistakes. I'm going to give you an example that almost every single crime scene investigator that you know or that might be listening to this will chuckle when they hear this. Because there is some point when you have a camera in your hand and you're documenting something very important, somebody else, and it's usually a homicide detective, will say, uh, hey, so-and-so, can you come here? I need you to get a shot of this. See, now they've taken you away from the systematic processing of something else to take a picture of something they think is important, and it might be very important. It will get photographed. It just may not be right then and there, but it doesn't matter. They, they need it now. Um, there are a few exceptions in scenes. We may want to take a phone, cell phone, out of a scene early so we can get, they can get working on the inner workings of the phone. There's, there are exceptions. There are um, you know, exigent circumstances that we have to do certain things out of order, but those are all explainable when it comes down to it. What's not explainable is to have a parade of people that just wants to walk through and check it out because it looks cool. It's not the way that should be, should be done. And I, I, you know, that's one of the things that you see on TV when you, when you walk into a, one of the things I always laugh at is, it's a picture of, picture of an inner, inner, inner city apartment and there's been a murder and the guy's in the bedroom dead and the wife is still sitting on the couch in the living room and some people are talking to him and people are walking in and out. In the background, you have a guy with a camera saying nothing and he's just walking around. He's taking pictures of everything, taking pictures of people that are in there. That shit doesn't happen, folks, Okay. Those people, that wife that's sitting on the couch, no, she wouldn't be there. She'd be downtown somewhere in an interview room being talked to somewhere else. That parade of people wouldn't exist. They might be out in the hall, but they're not coming in if it's done properly. So those are kind of the background things that in the very beginning of, a, of processing a scene is scene integrity and maintaining that scene integrity. It's very important. In this case, they did that. They did well. And, the, and it's a good thing they did because the scene had a lot of it was cluttered. It wasn't a dump, but you know, let's face it. Ryan Poston's—he's a, a guy. He's living. He's a, he's a bachelor. He's dating people, but he's a bachelor. Bachelor houses usually aren't the neatest things in the world, right? We get in, we throw our stuff on the counter, or whatever. Nobody's complaining. Nobody's telling us to clean up. So, it was a little cluttered. It was a—it was a kind of a cool little apartment, but it was cluttered, and that became important in this case. Uh, what we looked at on the dining room table became important. What we looked at around the dining room table. You're gonna hear me say over and over, one of the things we tell people is notice what is there. That sounds like, okay, yeah, no kidding, duh. The other thing is notice what's not there because it can be equally as important or sometimes even more important. So what's there, what's not there. If there was a physical altercation, would you expect there to be evidence of that? The answer to that is, well, it depends where the altercation took place. One of the things Shana Huber said was, later in another statement, was Ryan Poston was seated at the chair on the far side of the table with his back to the wall. And she said he got kind of halfway out of the chair and grabbed the gun, but she wrestled it away from him on the other side of the table. Okay, well, that becomes important. I'm going to talk about why 
That's important in a little bit. So every little thing they say, you have to pay attention to. You've heard in previous episodes when we talk with Jerry Lewis about statement analysis. It's not just what they say, it's how they say it. I mean, what they say is critically important, but how they say it, what they forget, what they include, all become very important. When you get something like this, where she's all over the board, I was carried me outside, came back in. Uh, I picked up the gun. He picked up the gun. Now he's on the other side of the table. She's obviously not being honest. So now you have to say, okay, we can't really rely on her for any truth. So we have to speak to the one thing that is going to tell us the truth, and that is the physical evidence. And the way you do that is you sit and you take a few minutes before you begin and you document everything, and then you go slow. Systematic processing and search of this crime scene, asking each other questions along the way. The line of communication has to be open and it has to be real. The people that you are have in that room, this is critically important. They have to be players. Okay? Murder day is not practice day. One of the things I find mistakes that are made quite a bit is a supervisor of crime union will say, hey, Joe, you know, you've never had a murder before. Why don't you take this one? You're ready. No, no, no. The big day happens when, some, when somebody's life ends, murder. That's not practice time, folks. You bring your A-team out. You bring your, your, your A-list players, and you work to their strengths. You know, I don't want to hear, well, you know, Mary didn't do photos in a while. Let's let her have a crack at this one. No, no. Who's your best photographer? Put that person on the camera if you can. If you can. I mean, manpower and everything is an issue. Who's your, you know, your best at the Leica scanner or this? Put them on it. Practice time is not murder day. Murder day is game time. So use your personnel wisely and, and get it done. Now, when you speak to that crime scene or that crime scene speaks to you is really what I should say, you better be listening and you better be watching and you better be watching where you walk and what you pick up and what you touch. Because as homicide investigations unfold, other statements and other information come to light. You don't want to have dismissed something or discarded something only to find out later that a statement that was made now makes that piece that you forgot about become very important. One of the things we always did was we held a murder scene until the autopsy was done. A lot of times that autopsy was done that very same day. A lot of times it wasn't done until the next day. It didn't matter. I actually didn't care when it was done. That scene was not going to be released until it was done. Because we find out things during postmortem examinations that may make us go back to the scene and look for something else. Um, there is no hurry. People say, well, we got to get it done. No, no. You got to get it done right. This isn't, a, there's no, you know, there's, this, this doesn't have an expiration date. You're not, you're not going to time out and, you know, like, uh, and it's not going to vanish. You know, Huck turns midnight. It doesn't turn into a pumpkin here. It's you, you got to go. You got to you got to get it done right. So hold it. Make those make those decisions, and and make sure you take care of what you need to while you're there. And it doesn't cost much. I know everybody bitches about overtime and manpower. 
but it doesn't cost much to put a patrol guy, even if you got to give him an overtime shift overnight, to sit at the door, make sure nobody goes in and knows, nobody goes out. Chain of custody is kept intact. You're going to be at the post, the autopsy, maybe 8 o'clock the next morning. You'll be done by whatever, noon, hopefully less than that, but maybe later, depending on what it is. And then you'll know, we, we, we need to go back. I always would go back and look one more time. Just look, maybe not do a lot of, of, of rooting around, but just look and make sure. And always ask that question and ask the question to your coworkers. Are we done? Did we miss anything? That's another reason why it's important to have players there, real players that know what they're doing, that have done this. Bring the new guys along and, and let them see how it works. But you gotta, you've got to make sure that when you release that crime scene, you are in fact done. Um, so in this particular case, what I want to do um, in this, I want to close this one up right now by just telling you where we're going to leave it off is Ryan Poston is found on the floor. We're going to learn very quickly that he has six gunshot wounds. In the next episode, what I'm going to do is I'm going to discuss where he was shot, where on his body, where the entrance wounds were located, and equally or more as important than that is the wound tracks themselves. We're going to talk about muzzle to target distance, gunshot residue, what it means and why it's so critically important in a shooting. We'll break down the actual incident of the shooting. We're going to get you up to speed on that. And then in the episode after that, we're going to talk about trial preparation and the actual trial and what became important at trial. So we're going to wrap this one up right now, giving you the groundwork of the murder of Ryan Poston, and we're going to pick it up in the next episode with the actual shooting incident and the characteristics of it that become very important. So thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.